we have the numbers. The problem is, is the majority is a flat, flabby, moderate majority going against a very zealous, organized, highly funded minority. And unfortunately, historically, that zealous minority can carve us like butter. Unless we build that multicultural coalition of the willing and we flex, then we win. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things, and action is the best antidote for anxiety. Today, we talk about a landmark settlement for the families of Sandy Hook victims four years after the Parkland shooting. The ongoing rise in opioid deaths in our country and what legislators are trying to do about it. And more alternative facts and misrepresentations from, you guessed it, Fox News. Then we're joined by Daily Beast and New York Times columnist and author of Go Back to Where You Came From and other helpful recommendations on becoming American, Wajahat Ali. It's an important and sort of funny conversation about racism in America. You got to listen to figure that one out. All of that plus our reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And, and this, this is How, how We, we Went. A lighthearted, funny conversation about racism in America. It really is. He has he has a gift for covering heavy topics in a way that doesn't leave you feeling heavy. And the I after our conversation with him, I felt lighter. And I can't wait for people to listen and and hopefully have that same experience where you you know you have a lot of work to do, but you feel good about the work that you're about to embark upon. We also talk about why we need to use satire to have these conversations, and it's uh, so hard for uh, white people, especially, to have you know these important conversations about race and racism. So, anyway, can't wait for people to hear it, um, and I'm super grateful to Waj for joining us because he's he's really brilliant. As we're recording this, it's only Tuesday afternoon, but I feel like our week has been podcast packed and I <laughs> encourage people to listen to us. On We were on the Daily Beans earlier this week on Monday, um, which is an amazing podcast if you're not listening to it. Another one that we're going to be on later this week is Midas Touch. Um, and then you've, of course, mm-hmm. got How We Win. Um so you got a lot of listening to do today, and you We're are this all week. We're over the can, podcast world this week. You can get your <laughs> me and Steve on all of them. <laughs> yeah, you can skip next week's show if you want. No, don't skip it. It's going to be a good one too. But yeah. Um. But but before we get to the amazing conversation with Wajaha Ali, we have a mixed bag of news to talk. There's like it's, news is all over the place this week, um, which makes it interesting for us. Yeah, you know, I I wanted to recognize, um, and I put in the notes for today's conversation to recognize the fourth anniversary of the Parkland shooting, uh, which was this week, mm-hmm. and uh, and then mm-hmm. lo and behold, uh, today uh, we got some breaking news that families of Sandy Hook victims uh, reached a settlement with Remington which makes the AR-15 style weapon used in the 2012 attack that killed 20 children and six adults. The lawsuit originally seen as a long shot used a unique strategy going after Remington's uh, Remington's sales and marketing practices, seizing on an exception built into federal law. So what was the, what was the settlement that they reached? Was the money amount announced yet? As of right now, the the final number hasn't been announced. Uh, a few days ago, Remington offered to settle for thirty three million. Um, there's rumors that it's closer to it's over seventy million, but the final number hasn't been officially put out yet. But this this is huge because uh, gun manufacturers are typically protected from lawsuits by federal law, but by you know, attacking their marketing practices and saying that they were appealing to people like the the uh, the gunman in this case. The lawyers for the Sandy Hook victims found a, a unique opening that others might be able to use in the future. I love seeing this news because when I was going to talk about the fourth anniversary of the Parkland shooting, I was reminded of one of our early interviews that we did um, when we went to the 
Gun Sense Forum mm-hmm. that was sponsored by uh, Moms Demand Action and um, Gifford's uh, group and interviewed Chris Murphy. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a pretty hopeful interview in a area that I have so little hope in. It's like just been so heartbreaking for me, the lack of ability to pass any common sense gun legislation that is popular with 90% of our electorate. It really, if anything, showcases how uh, this country and our legislatures are still strangled by minority rule. Uh, this is it. This is the issue. And Chris Murphy was talking about like a lot has actually changed in seven years. At the time, it was seven mm-hmm. years since Handy, Sandy Hook, and uh, and that he, he was hopeful that some you know movement would happen. This was a few years ago, and I've I've frankly heard nothing. You know, um, I, I've I've been uh, blown away by the activists uh, and and the continued work from the Parkland students uh, and March for Our Lives, and they've certainly changed the public narrative on this. But um, it's been you know demoralizing, and we've had more more shootings. Uh, obviously, a lot of shootings since then. More use of assault weapons since then. But now we actually have. Uh, not only a, an impending settlement, but uh, a new legal precedent that's going to help us in this. So that's uh, that's something positive. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's. Thank you for reminding us of that conversation. Um, I would encourage people to scroll back <laughs> to <laughs> November back. of 2019 um, to listen to this podcast because I think when I when I think over all of our episodes, this is one of the, you know, top five that I'm most proud of Mm -hmm. um, because we got so much information from so many voices and it was very hopeful. And just a reminder, you know, we're living in a a time and place where there will, without a doubt, be another mass shooting in our future. And it's going to feel hopeless. And in that moment, we have to think back to this moment and remember the victories that um, may not be exactly what we want, but are moving us toward a safer place where we hopefully stop losing children over this. Well said. Well said. Yeah. the The other thing that I want to that we would like to talk about today is an article that came out in the New York Times a few days ago that opioid deaths have hit uh, yet a new high. And, uh, and this is something we've talked about a little bit on this show. This is something that people don't talk about nearly enough. Um, the fact right. is drug overdoses in America now kill more than 100,000 Americans a year. Uh, for context, mm-hmm. that's more than vehicle crashes and gun deaths combined. Um, and this, this is an wow. epidemic uh, that... Uh, we have yet to get a handle on. And I don't know if you, Mariah, or any of our listeners saw the really excellent show Dope Sick, which um, mm, yeah. uh, talks about the legal actions and the rise of uh, the opioid epidemic uh, led by the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and the creation of OxyContin. I recommend it. It's uh, a dramatization. It's not a documentary, but it's... Um, Uh, It's based on all the real facts, and um, it's stunning. Uh, We just don't have an answer to this yet. And, um, you know, we talked about some settlements that did come through, which were great, and that money is being invested in uh, more treatment. Look, we are in the middle of a mental health crisis, a mental health crisis in our country. It's been made so much worse by the pandemic Yes. Uh, people are isolated. I read an art. I read a an article this morning that um, uh, accidents on the road uh, have gone up, and uh, and then a, mm. a reason that social scientists social scientists are are saying for that is 
people have this sense of like the rules not applying or they're quick to anger or they're just you know, on edge and, um, and we don't have the, the social skills that we did a few years ago because people have been increasingly isolated. Um, it is time for us to seriously invest in mental health resources for our country. And, um, you know, we, we live within a healthcare system that uh, rewards companies that, you know, make billions of dollars off of treatments for sick people and does not incentivize uh, any company to actually keep people healthy and to prevent people from getting sick. And, and that needs to change. And um, the, the, I, I, so I did some research because I didn't want to just complain about this and then leave that out there. I wanted to see what legislation uh, we could actually help support. Oh, that's super helpful. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, Ed Markey has been uh, mm. one of the senators who has been championing this. He's been one of the few who is really focused on it. And, you know, his home state of Massachusetts is hit very hard by the opioid epi epidemic, as many other states are, too. So he's got uh, some bipartisan legislation to modernize, improve methadone treatment amid the skyrocketing opioid overdoses and deaths. Uh, a surprising co-author of this bill is Republican Rand Paul, who I have- wow, Kentucky. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like I have zero, very yeah. little to say nice about him, but he happens to be in Kentucky, which is one of the state's worst hit by this. Right. So uh, I recommend people um, contact them and support this legislation. Uh, it enhances uh, the ability for people to get treatment and to get methadone-specific treatment, uh, which is uh, extremely helpful to people facing opioid addictions. It also lets them uh, get it at home and at home supplies, so it limits the um, the barriers uh, for people who have a hard time traveling or who may be homebound and and um, and a lot of other things too. So uh, check out that legislation and um, and do what you can to support that. Yeah, thanks as always for for the action item. Um, and yes, watch Dope Sick on Hulu if you don't have an understanding of um, how this all went down and how anybody can get addicted to opioids because they are intentionally made to be ragingly addictive. You'll learn a lot from the, from, from the yeah. dramatization of the story. Yeah, I don't talk about this much on here. I am a recovering alcoholic and addict. I've been uh, sober for 31 years. I got sober when I was 19 years old, and I'm I'm so grateful that I got to grow up sober. But you know, mm -hmm. thankfully, fortunately, I never faced opioid addiction, and it really is a mm -hmm. different ball game. And um, I, I don't want yeah. to minimize how hard it is to get sober from alcohol and other drugs, but opioids um, really changes your brain chemistry. And um, uh, right. it's it's really, really scary. So um, anyone who is out there listening to this, uh, I'm, I'm certain that someone knows someone who's affected by this. And, um, and you know, I, I hope that you find the treatment uh, either as a uh, loved one or someone who is dealing with uh, this addiction. Um, it, it's not available enough, and and we need to destigmatize uh, mm -hmm. what it means to be an addict in this country. Thank you so much for sharing, Steve. Very important. Anyway, um, what else is going on? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this this story is I started looking into this because maybe people out there who are listening are like me. Maybe they live with somebody who follows Fox News and the New York Post on Twitter and then mm. insists on sharing headlines that are highly questionable. So there is this story that is um, floating around out there that, you know, communications best practices. We're not going to repeat the story because it's actually not true. But I am going to debunk it. Um, so <laughs> this is based on a recent filing in um, the John Durham inquiry. John Durham was uh, a Trump era special counsel that was investigating the inquiry into uh, Russia's 2016 election interference. The witch um, hunt. The witch hunt. So um, 
uh, in this, in the inquiry, a, a pretrial motion was filed last week. And I'm going to read from the New York Times so I get all of this right. Durham slipped in a few extra sentences that set off a furor among right-wing outlets about purported spying on former President Donald J. Trump. But the entire narrative appeared to be mostly wrong or old news. The latest Hmm. example of the challenge created by a barrage of similar conspiracy theories from Mr. Trump and his allies. Uh, And then finally from the New York Times, upon close inspection, these narratives are often based on a misleading presentation of the facts or outright misinformation. They also tend to involve dense and obscure issues, so dissecting them requires asking readers to expend significant mental energy and time, raising the question of whether news outlets should even cover such claims. Yet Trump allies portray the news media as engaged in a cover-up if they don't. So uh, bottom line, this is par for the course. Trump allies put out a rumor or actual misinformation or only part of a story. And it's so obscure and confusing to track down the truth that other media outlets don't bother to report on it. And then they're accused of covering things up. So I saw a screen grab from Fox last night that had, you know, all the other mainstream news outlets on the screen and said, you know, they've each one has has dedicated this many number of minutes to covering this scandal that doesn't exist. And all of them had a zero under them. <laughs> they're not covering it because it's not an actual story, but then they're getting dinged for, for not covering it. So now, you know, the rumor that you've been hearing from your 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 brainwashed folks out there, friends and family out there, <laughs> not true. That does belie the larger question of of how we deal with you know misinformation without amplifying that misinformation, as you said. Right. You know, that's um, the key. Uh, I don't really know the right balance for that because you know, as you did, I think you did it very well just now. Actually, like you need to debunk it and say this is false. And if you come across this, and this is uh, Fox News doing their Fox News bullshit. Yeah, listen. If you if you need the details and you Google Durham, you'll find all kinds of crazy stuff that you can say. Oh. Wow. I'll bet you find a lot of crazy stuff if you Google Durham. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) All right. Time for some great news in our Hero of the Week segment. Steve, you got to pick the Hero of the Week this week. Who'd you pick? I did. And, uh, you know, the Olympics have been going on, the Winter Olympics. We haven't had an opportunity to talk about it. I have uh, a couple of heroes, really. But uh, the main hero of the week to talk about today is Erin Jackson, who has just become the first black woman to win a speed skating medal at the Winter Olympics. She won the gold. Jackson won the 500 meters Sunday with a time of 37.04 seconds, which is really fast, giving the U.S. its first individual medal since 2010 in the speed skating. The cool thing about this story also is that Jackson's gold came after she had slipped at the U.S. trials and had shockingly finished third, which put her spot on the actual Mm. Olympic team in jeopardy until her teammate, Brittany Bowe, uh, wow. who finished first at the trials, literally gave up her spot to ensure Jackson oh would get to skate in, in Beijing. Yeah, she she knew that she had a better chance of meddling, and she wanted to make sure she she got in. Oh As it turned God. out, uh, they, both, they both ended up getting in, uh, and mm. Bo got to skate as well. She finished 16th. So... Um, you know, Aaron Jackson is our hero of the week uh, and also uh, a hero for being the first black woman speed skater to win gold, the Winter Olympics. But uh, I also want to recognize that amazing act by Brittany Bowe and, and, and being a hero and, uh, and putting herself to the side uh, for Jackson's opportunity. So That's they incredible. are my heroes of the week. Oh, I'm getting oh, chills. Wow. That's a great. Didn't see that coming. You uh, thought I was when I brought up the Olympics. You thought I was going to talk about curling, didn't you? Oh, (laughs) everybody's favorite 
winter event, the curling. <laughs> so aside from learning curling uh, lingo, <laughs> what's what am I supposed to do this week? Yeah, let's talk about this week's to-do list. We've got something for you to do, which we rarely do on this show, and that's sign a petition. It's a super easy to-do list, uh, to-do item for this week. This particular uh, petition will be, there'll be a link to it in our show notes. So you can find mm -hmm. that at, as you can every week. Our action item will be in the show notes. It's a petition to tell Congress uh, to increase the pressure on Postmaster DeJoy to fire DeJoy uh, among uh, many reasons, but specifically because of the threat to the environment that he now faces. Because um, good news is there was just some bipartisan legislation uh, passed to support the post office, to invest in the post office. But the bad news is um, the Biden administration's efforts to uh, move to a federal electric fleet and the EPA's efforts to transition to electric vehicles uh, is being thwarted by DeJoy's insistence at awarding a contract for the entire fleet of post office vehicles to barely make improvements over the 30-year-old uh, vehicles that exist right now. And this is significant to our environment because uh, the post office fleet is the third largest in the country. That's real impact to our environment if we're able to modernize that fleet of trucks and uh, make them electric trucks, which Everybody knows we should do, and all of the research shows that we should do it, and the EPA mm -hmm. wants to do it, and the Biden administration wants to do it, but uh, Louis DeJoy is a big fucking asshole and is uh, very likely getting some okay. um, some kickbacks for his uh, contract. I don't. Oh my goodness! You know, I can be like Fox <laughs> and just throw that out there and speculate on something that I don't really know is true, but uh, it would not surprise me if that was the case. Yeah. And um, we can let the fact checkers, you know, call me on that later. But anyway, um, so we've got to push back on this for the sake of our environment. This is a huge, huge missed opportunity to make some meaningful change to the emissions in our country. Um, the, the link is in our show notes. Just sign a petition. Let's put some pressure on our electeds. Yeah, it'll take you just a minute or two to sign this. Uh, the petition is closing in on its uh, on its goal of signers. They just need a couple hundred more people to take them over the finish line. So you could be one of those folks. Thank you, Steve. I'm going to do that while we listen to uh, this interview that we've got with Wajaha Ali. And then we'll be back to talk about our reasons for hope. Wajahat Ali is a Daily Beast columnist, public speaker, and author of the incredible new book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on becoming American. He is also the co-host of the Democracy-ish podcast. Wajahat, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much. I'm very impressed by the guitars in the background uh, of your excellent Zoom. Very Wes Anderson-esque Zoom setup, I must say. Very symmetrical. <laughs> That's a huge compliment. Oh, I, I wow, love the Wes Anderson reference. Yeah. Well, And also, Murray, I, I really like yours also as your boom mic is strategically hiding something behind you with the low angle <laughs> yeah. shot. So I, li I like that. I like yeah. it. It's the experimental with the very choreographed. I, I like the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> experimental uh that's that's uh, overly generous but i'll take it um so let's get started talking about this label that i've i read that you gave yourself an accidental activist mm. which is a phrase that probably sounds familiar to a lot of people listening to this tell us a little bit about how that accident happened and uh if there's a moment of impact that came out of it that you're particularly proud of yeah, that's yeah. So sometimes I get described as an activist, and I always reject the label, not due to shame 
or, or, or any feelings of like, you know, like I see it as a diss. It's because I'm like, no, I know activists. You know, I'm not an activist. I'm just a guy. Uh, you know, they're activists who are on the ground, who are committed, who do the work, who stress, who are masochists, unfortunately, and suffer needlessly. We should talk about that as well. <laughs> To do the good work and i'm just a guy who once in a while like with my limited like abilities assuming i have any just you know try to do the good work and so the reason why i refer to myself as the accidental activist is um this this crisis moment for our generation and i'm old enough to actually understand and uh place and name all the exquisite gen x millennial references in the super bowl yeah. Uh, <laughs> over the weekend, right? All the uh, like, I knew everything. I'm like, I knew the lyrics, <laughs> I knew the people performing, I knew all the the celebrities in the commercials. But for our generation, the major crisis, one of the major crises, was the 9/11 terror attacks. And mm-hmm. I was a 20 year old, undeclared senior at UC Berkeley, uh, and I had joined the Muslim Student Association because growing up in the Bay Area, I was often believe it or not, the token practicing Muslim and round guy. You go to Berkeley and you're like, oh, other Muslims. This is am- amazing. People can understand, you know, like why I'm fasting, not even water, not even water. And why I pray and like, why don't we eat, why I don't eat pork? So it was just cool to be in this multicultural uh, Berkeley with Muslims. And so I joined the Muslim Student Association by my senior year. They had elected me to the board, right? And, and if you're old enough, even now, the horrible conspiracy theory is that by by being Muslim or being part of any Muslim institution, even a student group, somehow we are agents of the radical Muslim Brotherhood and architects of this evil Sharia plan where we want to like put a burqa on Statue of Liberty and replace meatloaf with biryani, which would actually sound like a much more delicious alternative. <laughs> so, you know, you know this is like growing better. up 20 yeah. years old, 2001, <laughs> trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. And then 9-11 happens. And 9-11 happens and overnight that there becomes a pre and a post 9-11 in, the, in our narrative, in our timeline. Yeah. I would say even so for America, a fork in the road. But especially for us, right, Muslim kids or brownish kids, it was like, tag, you're it, you're the villain, you're the bad guy. Overnight, this country turned on you. Overnight, if you were a quote-unquote mall minority, a myth I hope to shatter in the book, um, you were seen as the villain. Oh, mm-hmm. you realize you're never going to be white. You're actually closer to blackness. And 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 this country is going to go after you. So that happened after 9-11. And very quickly, people forget how crazy this country was, right? Dixie Chicks were trending last week. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why are Dixie Chicks t- uh, trending? It's because someone brought up the memory of 20 years ago that Natalie Maines of the Dixie Chicks, right. like the whitest, most popular group at that time, all she said was, I'm embarrassed that George W. Bush is from Texas, y'all. Bye. That's all she said. <laughs> because of saying that, you remember what happened to her? They took tractors over Dixie Chick CDs, right? That's and right. so literally they bonfires yeah. over Dixie Chick CDs. Like the sweetest, most popular white blonde women who had the biggest tour at that time, the crossover appeal of country and rock and roll. That's all she said, and she was destroyed. So imagine how it was for the rest of us, especially a kid named Mujatali. And so I remember the day of 9-11 when 19 foreign hijackers brought down the two towers all the way at UC Berkeley. Mm. My email was on the Cal MSA website because my roommate mm. had put me as the liaison. Yeah. And I started getting the hate mails and I started yeah. getting blamed and we started getting hazed. And overnight, without any training whatsoever, I was expected to, number one, defend 1.8 billion Muslims, 1,400 years of Islamic civilization, and also condemn violent acts done by violent people I had never met. And that became this type of accidental activism where me and a lot of my friends, without any training, this young generation, every generation has its crisis. And for Mm -hmm. us, we were thrust, if you will, into the fire. Yeah. You asked me a simple question. I gave you an answer that I hope wasn't boring, but that's the reality of it. Oh, definitely not boring. And like, I mean, Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks, have taken us on a journey They've been canceled multiple times, I guess. Um, so that that's always a good reminder. So is there is there a, like a, a moment that came out of this that you would point to and say, this is what I'm proud of mm. or from your from your accidental activism or, you know, that, you know, that entire year. So I'll tell you what mm-hmm. happened is this is how it happened to UC Berkeley. We get a call that day from the chancellor's office. Chancellor mm-hmm. says, we want to meet you. We want to meet some of the student leaders from the Muslim Student Association. So like five of us meet the chancellor and then the president in like his office. And I remember like the sunlight was coming from the windows. It was like high ceilings. It was only us. It was like hush, hush. 
it was really interesting. First and foremost, he's like, listen, it's going to be a crazy time. We heard about like hate crimes already against Muslims. There were Muslim women wearing hijab who were afraid to come to school. I'm 20 years mm. old. I'm like, what? <laughs> How am I supposed to like handle all this? And two things. They're like, what can we do to help you? Also, should we expect anything from your group? Translation, are you guys going to cause any ruckus? It was very interesting. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I saw an opportunity. And I'm like, let me take advantage of this opportunity. If indeed you, Chancellor, and the school is offering resources, I know as a student of American history where this country is going to go for the next 10 years. So what we did is that we at UC Berkeley, just a few days after 9-11, did the first, uh, if you will, community Juma. Juma is Friday prayer. It's like the Muslim equivalent of Sunday Mass, but it's on Friday. So we said, you know, we do a Friday prayer. Let's do it at UC Berkeley. Let's open it up to the community. Let people come and see us. Let, pe let people pray with us. We're like, if we're lucky, we'll get 100 people. 1,100 people came up mm, to that, wow. right? It, wow. with, the, with the UC Berkeley's blessing. Then we said, give us resources. And what we'll do is in a moment of crisis, panic, and ignorance, we'll be proactive. We'll try to educate. And we'll try to build a multicultural coalition with other marginalized groups in this community. So you know, we'll do like social justice, but not just about Muslims, right? We'll get the Latino students. We'll talk about what's happening in the Middle East. We brought like Noam Chomsky and we did like Islamic awareness type of stuff. And then also two other things that we did was uh, we did the first mass protest in America against the war, a preemptive protest against the war because we knew mm -hmm. it was coming down the pipeline. And our Congresswoman, Barbara Lee, talked about being canceled, ladies and gentlemen. Let me give yes. you another deep cut mm -hmm. throwback. Yes. Barbara Lee was the only one who said, I am really worried about this blank check we've given mm -hmm. with the authorization to use military force. And because there's no parameters on this and it could be used and abused, I'm going to be the sole vote against it. She was destroyed for years, right. years. And our preemptive march against the war on terror, I don't want to say this but because now I'm old enough, I'm still alive. We were right, but we were hazed nationally. And I got... For the first time ever, that was my introduction to the right-wing media ecosystem that then mm. started attacking me because they had a quote from me during one of these protests where the Daily Cal, the student newspaper, published this very inflammatory cartoon a few days after 9-11 showing two bearded brown men, could have been sick, could have been Muslim, who knows? First hate crime, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, after 9-11 was against a sick man in Mesa, Arizona. Bigots aren't nuanced. And they were in hellfire and they were like standing in the in the in the palm of the devil saying, mm -hmm. where are our virgins? So we went to the Daily Cal. I'm like, you know, mm -hmm. I understand free speech. I understand this. But was this the best thing? That's I tried to be really nice, too, but they never met with me. Next thing you know, six hours later, it's like 200 people who took over the Daily Cal. Newspapers came and I did this quote. Apparently, were like, you know, we have to hold people responsible for like their anti-Muslim bigotry. Guess who picked up that quote? Bill O'Reilly in Fox News. So that's how I end up on the right wing ecosystem. Oh, that guy. I know as like a 20 year old. And I remember my history professor was like, check this out. And you print out a copy of like townhall.com. That was like all the rage at that time. And he goes, <laughs> my right wing grand, uh, you know, uh, father-in-law said, look at this crazy kid from UC Berkeley. Look at the crazy college you teach. And I'm like, that's my student. He's one of my best students. And privately, goes, <laughs> I'm proud of you. So Aww. that literally that that mm. was, you know, you asked me for one example, but I gave you several. And, and that was the danger room. Why I joke, this is X-Men uh, analogy I'm going to give. That was the danger room simulation for the rest of my career. No training, okay. baptism by fire, you're thrown in the deep end, the country is against you, you're trying to like push back, you're trying yeah. to like figure shit out, you're trying to go against a war, you're trying to steer this country towards sanity. And then 20 years later, the country's like, oh, you crazy darkies, you were right. But, <laughs> but back then, it was like, you crazy darkies, you're trying to implement Sharia, same as it ever was. Mm. Well, wow. I'm a big Marvel fan, but I, I am not as familiar with X-Men, so I'm going to have to dig into that analogy a little deeper. The Danger Room Simulation, Steve. <laughs> um, I am very familiar with Barbara Lee, and I'm a huge fan of hers, and I'm also a huge fan of coalition building. So, I'm, mm. you know, that's so cool that you did that early on and started from that because, um, you know, too often we're all organizing in our own silos, and, and that's really how we build our powers is through coalitions. Now, you talk about this journey 
and uh, and so much more in your incredible book. So I want to hear about your book. Why did you decide to write it, and what do you want people to take away from reading it? Ooh, that's I, I have to Venmo you. See, I was going to say I'm going to send you a check, but the kids use the Venmo now for that. That was very important. Thank you. <laughs> and I didn't even set up Steve for that. That was He just did that on his own, so that uh, that makes me feel good. The book... It's called Go Back to Where You Came From and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. And if I'd a, really set it up better, I would have said the title also. But so I no, would, no. so you can <laughs> it's, dis- it's, discount it's the about, you know, It's about loving a country that doesn't love the rest of us back. Mm-hmm. And it's an elegy for the rest of us, not named J.D. Vance or those who don't have the right complexion or those <laughs> who don't have economic anxiety or, or our anxiety has been ignored forever. And instead of just a lament or an elegy it's also celebration and and the title it captures this right you you start with something so ugly go back to where you came from and i get emails every day literally telling me to go back even though i was born and raised in this country and i start off the book with these uh, my responses to these emails so I, I i copy paste the email first email is go back to where you came from and i say fremont california i'd love to if you could subsidize the rent and then the second right. thing we get told especially if you're muslim is go fuck a goat or a camel um and, and I'm like, why only goats and camels? Why the obsession with these two animals? There's many animals, right? And so the title <laughs> of the book is kind of tongue in cheek. And I use humor at times throughout the book to very deliberately to confront and dismantle, I hope, these stereotypes to booby trap it, to go against the, uh, the oppressors, but also to sweeten the medicine. Meaning the messages that you all talk about in your podcast, oftentimes humor allows people to be more receptive to these messages. It makes them more open to otherwise controversial ideas and allows the medicine, the bitter medicine, not of the American dream, but of the American nightmare that the rest of us have to live, allows them to process it. And so this book, not necessarily as a memoir, but I use my specific story and use it as kind of a a Virgil history guide to connect the dots about how we got to Trumpism and how this is not a new phenomenon. And, and, I, and I use both humor and pain and sadness and joy, the entire gamut of emotions and also mapping what happened in my life because I was the mm-hmm. model minority kid whose parents then got arrested a couple of months after 9-11. So I had two crises, the, the 9-11 crisis mm-hmm. on a macro level and on a micro level, my parents get arrested. I'm the only child. We lose money. We lose the home. We lose the resources. I have to go. I have to leave school. I have to take care of my grandmother. This case goes on for 10 years. And throughout that 10-year period, I had a foot in the American dream as this college kid from the suburbs and had a foot in the American nightmare that is experienced by so many Americans, right? Uh, millions of Americans who are poor, who are brown, who are black, whose neighbors, neighborhoods, whose generations are destroyed by the uh, prison industrial complex. So, so it gives me a very unique vantage point, I think, into this thing called America. And then the book ends, I hope, with an earned hopefulness. And what I mean by that is, you know, you go through the forest and you confront the demons, Mm. you exit the forest, you're alive, but you still have the wounds and the scars, right? right? And oftentimes in the American exceptionalist story, you never talk about the wounds and the scars, (laughs) right? You're like, I survived and I will work harder and I'm a martyr, look at me. And in this book, I tried to talk about, and oftentimes in our communities, what we don't talk about, the pain, the trauma, mental health issues, poverty, mm-hmm. but I survived and many people don't. And I'm very lucky, but the, the end here is confronting the challenges of fascism, income inequality, climate change. I want us to acknowledge the horrors, but instead of giving into apathy and cynicism, I think, and I hope I make the successful case that we have to invest in hope, but we also have to invest in work. And so the last mm-hmm. chapter is invest in hope, but tie your camel first, which is a great saying. Muslims have is have faith in God, uh, but tie your camel first, which means exhaust everything you can through your own work in your own two hands and also then have faith. Uh, so much to, to unpack there. Um, Cause I talk too much. That's my fault. N- no, 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 no. <laughs> it's is a it, podcast. It's all, that's what it's for. <laughs> we're, we're here to talk. Um, I don't know where to start. Uh, so let, let's just quickly talk. So this is about confronting racism in America. You talked a little bit about how you use humor and satire. Um, you and Steve are, are on the same wavelength because he wrote the next question that's exactly about that. <laughs> um, but I want you to, and you answered it a little bit, but I want to expand on it because it's an interesting question, which is um, why do you think it's so hard for Americans and in parentheses, white Americans, mm. to have serious and challenging 
questions about racism? Why do you have to spoon feed, you know, this sugar to part of the audience for this? That's a very good question. I think, uh, you know, it it's there. There's humors in there, but it's not sugar coated. I, 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 I'm, humor is it's a tool. It's one of the many tools in the book, right? But it's a very successful tool, especially when talking about racism, because in America, people, literally, people would be like, if they, if given a choice between maybe punching their dog in the face and talking about racism, be like, eh, my dog can take it. <laughs> right? Like be, people would like, that's how uncomfortable Americans are talking about racism, right? Nobody's yeah, racist yeah. in America. I've never met a racist in America ever. Even mm. members of the KKK aren't racist. If you listen to them, I'm not a racist. I'm just part of the white identitarian movement. I'm not a racist. I'm just trying to preserve the white race. I How dare you call me a racist? I don't have a racist bone in my body. I'm an English major, but I married a doctor. I asked my wife, I'm like, are there racist bones? There goes, no, there's no bones that are racist or not racist. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a heart surgeon, but my my brother-in-law is a cardiologist. I'm like, is does someone have a racist heart? They're like, nope, just a heart. And, and I feel like the reason why we are so uncomfortable Comfortable talking about what I call the the Voldemort of America, the 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 the, the evil uh, mm-hmm. in America in the book, which I called uh, white supremacy, which I call the whiteness in the book. Again, it's not about white people, and I'm and I make clear in the book, I'm not talking about white people. I'm talking about a system, a paradigm, a structure, an ideology that elevates one protagonist of the American narrative, the white Christian male, at the expense at the rest of us, and for them equality is oppression. And so the reason why I think we're so uncomfortable talking about racism is if you talk about racism, what gets shattered immediately is the American myth, the American dream. Anyone can come here and pull yourself up from the bootstraps. And if you just work hard, then you too can make it, right? But if you talk about the American nightmare, if you talk about Voldemort, if you talk about white supremacy, then you have to confront and acknowledge the systems that have been put in place that are unfair and unbalanced. Then you have to ask yourself, huh, what is my role in either uplifting these systems or tearing them down? Huh, Hmm. what is my privilege or lack thereof and how do I benefit from these systems? So what's an easier way to simply ignore all of it? Racism doesn't exist. We live in a post-racial society. We gave you Obama. We read one book by Ta-Nehisi Coates. We admire Michelle Obama's <laughs> toned arms. We gave you Dre and, and, and Mary J. Uh, uh, you know, we loved crazy rich Asians. You darkies are always whining and complaining. Stop sucking at the teat of white liberal guilt. Stop being race hustlers. If you just work hard like these good model minorities, look at this good, happy black man. Look at Larry Elders and look at this good, happy Asian. Look at them. Why can't you do it? (laughs) See, there is no racism. You guys are just white. And you know who the real victim of racism is? White people. And if you think I'm crazy about this, pay attention, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. Donald Trump and Stephen Miller have already started the campaign. Open white victimhood. Donald Trump lied at his rally that's saying that white Americans are told to go back to the bus, back of the line to get vaccines. That's the next step. Right. And so instead of confronting it, what's going to happen instead is you're going to literally ban books that talk about it. You Mm -hmm. will ban CRT that is not taught and you will erase history. That's how uncomfortable even talking about racism makes white America. We need the myth. Yeah, uh, I mean, you said so many things that are right on there. And I I think that um, obviously racism just is such an inherently evil thing. And so no one is going to really admit to being a racist. And like you study pathology, you know, like my wife's an actor and she's played some terrible characters. But when she's playing them, she knows that like a character never thinks of themselves as evil, absolutely. Like the the, absolutely. the evil person point. doesn't think of themselves as an evil person. So you know, having uh, conversations about racism and admitting to you know um, doing things that are harmful to other people um, is, I think, a difficult thing for maybe anyone to do, but especially especially white people for all the other reasons that you said. And it is a a scary time, as as you pointed out, with Trump really just going I mean, he's always fortunately he's been so ham handed and obvious about it. He's brought a lot of this stuff to to plain view that's been kicking around for a long time. But it's it's going to the next level right now, which is really 
scary. Well, well um, the first part, if I may, because it's a really good point, and and I thought about this, and I've said this also, uh, you know, recently, is that no one sees themselves as the villain of any story. There's only two roles that we have. We're either the heroes or the victims. If you really think about it, and if people are listening and they're very honest with themselves, you're never right. the villain of the story, right? Even villains don't think they're the villains of the story. If you talk to right. Nazis and KKK members and white nationalists, read their literature. I'm a, they, I'm the victim. I'm being oppressed by the woke mob. And I'm willing to engage in what you consider to be violence or heinful, uh, heinous acts because I have to be the Paul Revere. I have to warn my race. I have to be the one who goes in and, and, and is seen as the villain to save my people, right? That's their literature if you listen to them. And if you listen to like Trump voters, they're like, I'm not a racist. What? I'm trying to preserve my people. What are you? You're the ones who are against me. And then also what Yunkin did here in Virginia, I'm in Virginia right now, and I, I warned, mm -hmm. oh, God, I warned Democrats. <laughs> I told them. I can't. I even wrote an article last summer. I'm like, you guys are messing this up. And McAuliffe thought he could just waltz in. Lazy ass campaign, uninspired, didn't engage in the culture war, no messaging. And I'm like, Yunkin's mm. going to win, guys. And so you have the Yunkin approach, which is perhaps going to be very attractive. Uh, um, unfortunately, whether Democrats want to admit it or not, to independents and suburban voters, where you dog whistle without saying it. And then now you have the blunt Trump approach. You got both of them, which are very dangerous, but the same result. Well, some things you, I'm, I'm sure, really hate being right about. Um, Anything, sir. <laughs> that's definitely one of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, all right. So, uh, having said all that, um, I'll I'll play the role that is where I live: the progressive, straight white man who is uh, trying to be a good anti-racist and put you in the position that you explicitly say you don't like being in your book, which is the spokesperson for um, <laughs> <laughs> the sole spokesperson for millions of people. Um, but, you know, what are white people uh, and I'm talking I'm not talking about like the abject racists. I'm talking about progressives who are, you know, guilty of microaggressions and unwittingly causing harm where they think they're doing good. What do we need to stop doing and what do we need to start doing? Well, that's very good. Uh, look, first and foremost, you have to realize that as tired as you are talking about racism, imagine the rest of us who have to live with racism. Uh, yeah. We would love a world where we don't talk about racism ever. We would love a world where I never have to be on this podcast answering this question, right? So as exhausted as you are, we're even more exhausted, number one. Number two, when people complain and we, when people talk, you have to realize, and this is very difficult, try your best to remove yourself from the attack. It's not personal. What we're talking about are these microaggressions and macroaggressions, the daily lived experiences of being a person of a color in a country that doesn't want us, right? And so we're not against white people. And this is the main thing. I'm going to say this again. We're not against white people. We're not trying to replace white people. In fact, many of us want to be white to this day, right? We internalize our otherness in such profoundly detrimental ways. It's not about uh, hating white people. It's about hating white supremacy. And there are white people who are against white supremacy. And let me put it this way. There are people of color who cape for white supremacy. What you have to be as an ally is a person who says, you know what? I realize there is a system and an ideology in place in America that was that is completely skewed and unbalanced and biased that helps a person like me get ahead at the expense of other folks. And if I want to be an ally, I can do three things. Number one, awareness. I will do my part and not just simply rely upon the token person of color at work to do all the work to be aware about diversity, equity, inclusion. I will read a book. I will ask good questions, right? I won't, if I'm truly interested in being a partner, any good relationship requires what? Reciprocity. I'm willing to be a good partner. I'm willing to have awareness. Secondly, I'm willing to make the intention. I believe intentions are very powerful. Writing them out, declaring them, right? I intend to lose weight. I intend to be a better father. I intend to be a better ally by doing X, Y, and Z. So what's your intention? Make the intention. And the third thing I would say is action. What are you doing in your daily life? How are you changing behavior? How are you modeling yourself? What are the new languages and tools and words that you're using, right? How are you entering into these spaces? Doing these simple things might not seem like profound, but at the end of the day, what I say is this, people feel overwhelmed, they feel exhausted. They're like, there's climate change, there's income inequality, there's racism. I'm just Steve, I'm a dad, I live in the suburbs, what can I do? And I sincerely believe this. People tell me this all the time, but Jihad, I'm overwhelmed, man. I'm not like you on CNN or MSNBC or writing for the New York Times or Daily Beast. What can I do? I said, every day in your daily actions, 
You can be the America you want this country to become. If you're a parent, how are you talking to your kids? What books are you reading? Are you, are you checking your kid if they're saying something wrong? Are you introducing books? Are you trying to say, listen, don't judge someone by their skin color? Are you reaching out to a church, a synagogue, a mosque in your community? Are you trying to run for the school board because the right wing is packing the school boards? Are you running for city office, right? Mm-hmm. Are you saying, you know what? I didn't realize that each time I do a panel, there's four dudes and one mm-hmm. woman. Huh. Do I really need to be on this panel? Maybe I'll be on the next panel. Maybe I'll, Or maybe I'll just speak up. Maybe I'll be the person, not rely on the woman or the person of color to speak up. And I'll be like, you know, as a white guy, I think there's four white dudes and one woman. Maybe we can bring in one other person of color. These are the small things we realize. And the data shows that when a white person in particular is the messenger of this particular message, it has a greater impact on changing the attitudes of white folks. So speaking up, being aware, having the intention, doing the action, doing whatever you can within your limited capacities that to me is the type of allyship which i think can change generations and the finally the, the thing that i'll say is it's this, this is hard work we're all gonna mess up toes will be stepped on you might try with your best intentions and then someone will be pissed off at you for saying the wrong thing take a breath exhale realize that you're not the villain and that person probably isn't even angry at you it's just what that person's dealing with but if you still stay in the ring I'll say this, I'll finish on this. If you still stay in the ring and you have that commitment, that same person who probably snapped at you will come back and perhaps apologize or at the very least be grateful. Mm. Like, wow, you stuck through it. Thank you so much. You were thinking about the Mm. long term. In the short term, toes will be stepped on. In the short term, you feel like you won't win. In the short term, you'll be pissed off. You're like, short term, you're like, I'm the good white. At the short term, you're like, my intentions are pure and I still can't win. Still stay in the fight. Still stay in the fight. This is about changing generations. Thank you for um, coming to my TED talk. <laughs> You're one of the few people we've had on who could actually say that. Um, <laughs> uh, so I almost like, I, I don't know, like the, the question that we ask everybody, you've just given us something to be super hopeful about. And so now I'm going to ask you the question that we ask everybody at the end of this podcast is um, what gives you the most hope for the future? Look, I'll be honest. Uh, I'm looking at the polls today. I read Politico and I'm like looking at the 2022 midterms and, you know, all the fears and horrors that especially people of color warned about and scholars and students of fascism and authoritarianism. You know, it seems to be coming to a head. Uh, It seems to be coming to a head. And there's moments where I sit there. I'm like, we're effed, man. We are effed in this country. It's going to be really bad. And America oftentimes, uh, unfortunately, doesn't learn the easy way. We learn the hard way. Right. But then I sat there and I thought, okay. It isn't over yet. The story is still being written. We still don't know what's going to happen. We've gone through much worse. My ancestors have gone through much worse, survived partition and war. Black people have survived. Many have not through slavery, right? And this is still an ongoing rough draft. And I make it very personal if you ask about hope. Right next to me outside is my little daughter wearing a dress uh, with a flower in her hair. She's five years old. Today is National Donors Day where we appreciate donors. Uh, Two years ago, Right before the mm. pandemic, she had stage four cancer and she needed a full liver transplant. And they thought she wouldn't survive. And 500 people stepped up to be anonymous donors. Uh, most mm. people had never met her because I, I shared her story. And that is remarkable because some of those people told me, they messaged me and they said, I hate everything you tweet. And I said, everything? They said, everything. But I'm praying for your daughter. Some of them were conservatives, right? And I still believe that mm. some people can change and some people have the capacity to do good. And when it comes to my daughter, an anonymous donor stepped up and gave his liver, Sean Zahir. And at the last second, her life got saved. She's cancer-free, she's aged five. Now, two and a half years ago, if you had asked me, this would happen, that she'd be singing in canto songs with, you know, looking beautiful with her curls back and her skin color back and, you know, just with a scar and just happy-go-lucky. I'm like, I don't see it. But I chose to invest in this Hail Mary narrative in my mind that maybe just maybe she'll live and maybe inshallah we'll look back at these days and maybe there'll be a smile on her face and maybe there'll be better days ahead. And so when people say, well, Jad, you're too optimistic or too naive, I'm like, how can I not be optimistic when I have a living miracle bouncing next door in my home, right? Like in my, in my room. And, you know, in the book I mentioned there are many times I could have died, but I'm alive. And I mentioned I was broke. And my parents were in jail and I'm like, how will I survive? But my parents are out and they rebuilt their lives. And I got married to a woman who's like much better looking than me and smarter than me. 
And, you know, and, and you feel like, you know, we'll never survive Trump, but we did. And so I feel like the challenges are in front of us. I confront it head on. I don't, my, I don't have my head buried in the sand, but both from a personal view and a macro view, uh, somehow life goes on and the story is not finished. I do not see the end. And if you don't see the end, that means the story is still being written. But what I encourage your listeners to do is stop being passive observers, right? I need more co-protagonists. I need people to pick up the pen and write the story. And this is where we need a multicultural coalition. If you're banking on the Avengers to come and help you, the Avengers ain't coming. They're only a story. <laughs> we need the moms, the pops, the people running for office, the teachers. We need the doctors. We need the students. We have the majority. I always tell people this. We have the numbers. The problem is, is the majority is a flat, flabby, moderate majority going against a very zealous, organized, highly funded minority. And unfortunately, historically, that zealous minority can carve us like butter. Unless we build that multicultural coalition of the willing and we flex, then we win. And this is how we win. We have the numbers. We just have to organize. We have to ally ourselves. We have to flex. And then, inshallah, I think we can have a nice little plot twist. And maybe, just maybe, everyone can then taste the fried glory that is the American dream. Wow. I, I need to the send... The supersized fried glory. <laughs> the supersized fried glory. I need to send you uh, a Venmo now back, or I need to return your yeah. money, because uh, that was perfect and exactly uh, what we want people to do on this show. Um, so... Thank you so you fit much. You the name of the podcast in and everything. I know. You even got in How We Win. It yeah, was man. Pretty, you're a pro. You know what you're doing. This isn't your your first podcast. Um, but thank you Say so much. Say my for, first rodeo? It's not your first rodeo. Um, and I heard someone say recently, speaking of Twitter, um, like one rodeo seems like a very low bar for someone to be an expert in rodeos. But anyway, um, your book is called <laughs> Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on Becoming American. It's great. I especially recommend the audiobook because in listening uh, to Waj, of course, on the show, you can hear how great the audiobook is, too. You do a great job uh, telling these stories yourself. And of course, check out his podcast, Democracy-ish. Thank you so much for being here with us. Great conversation. No, no. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for hosting this podcast. Thanks for uh, organizing folks on the ground, giving people some strategies and tips and hopes. And look, I, I always say it's easy to be cynical. It requires zero investment. Apathy is easy and cheap, right? Having hope, uh, it's painful. It means your country might betray you, but uh, hope is what we need. But we need hope and action. And so let's let's get to work. Mariah, let's hear from you first. What's your reason for hope this week? Okay, Steve, here's my reason for hope. So I did watch the Super Bowl last weekend. Yay, Rams. Mostly for the halftime show. And because the Rams, my team, were there. I'm very conflicted about the NFL, okay? I'm not yeah, going to lie. Me too. I got lots of mixed feelings about the NFL, but I said, okay, I really want to see the Rams and I know people at the game and I want to watch the halftime show. So I'm going to watch the game. And then Eminem kneeled and I said, okay, finally, somebody's going to say something. And let's all remember Colin Kaepernick shut out of the NFL. Mm -hmm. Race, rampant racism in the NFL, not enough black coaches in the NFL. Eminem gave us the reminder that we needed and made me feel slightly better about watching the game. The yeah. wind didn't hurt. And the halftime show was, I feel like it was made just for me. Like <laughs> somebody was like, what does Mariah want to see the most? What does this elder millennial want to see the most? This halftime show. Yeah. Um, so conflicted, but enjoyed it. I'm conflicted too. I gave up watching football, uh, um, years ago for a number of reasons, <laughs> both personally emotional reasons and um, and uh, mostly uh, my feelings about the NFL. But uh, yes, I appreciated Eminem. I appreciated the halftime show so much, had a huge smile on my face uh, the entire time. It was great. And thank you, Eminem, for, for doing what uh, the NFL specifically asked him not to do. They specifically asked them not to do that. 
And he did it. Rage Against the Machine. Um, what is. is your reason for hope? My reason for hope comes off of, uh, on the heels of last week's Hero of the Week, of your Hero of the Week. You were talking about the Afghan women who were struggling and um, and needed support. And then Biden signed an executive order order to split $7 billion in frozen Afghan funds uh, between victims of the September 11th attacks, um, mm. who still need a lot of funding for lingering health issues and, and right. all that, uh, mm. and then uh, Afghan people themselves. Um, the Afghan government, as you articulated last week, uh, has been struggling, has basically collapsed. I mean, people are starving. People are being oppressed by this Taliban rule that wants to look at, wants people to look at them like a kinder, gentler Taliban, but that is a low mm. bar. So uh, thankfully, some aid is going to them. It's not enough. It's not going to really even scratch the surface, but um, but it's a, uh, a it's that money going back into where it needs to be and and helping the people on the ground there, and that gave me some hope that we're not going to just abandon the Afghan people as mm -hmm. we um, as we have left uh, the military actions there. Yeah, we still we still have a, a lot of work to do there, even even though the military is gone just as human beings. Yeah. Um, so that is very hopeful. Thank you for that. Thank you to everyone who joined us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. Take a visit to our website at howwewinpod.com. And uh, we want to hear from you. So you can shoot us an email there at hello at howwewinpod.com. Or you can tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at mariah underscore craven. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever else you get your pods. We always appreciate you being here with us. We'll be back, of course, next Wednesday with some more fun and games. See you then.